This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. But I think that what we have is a problem that individuals who might struggle sometimes to fall asleep quickly, which is clearly the metric of good sleep in this country, which is a terrible metric. It lends itself to this false equation of, I went to bed last night and it took me an hour to fall asleep. Therefore, I'm now at risk of breast cancer and cardiovascular disease and dementia. And that's no more true than you weren't hungry for dinner. And so now you're at risk for starvation. I mean, maybe, but there's a lot of things that need to happen between point A and point B. So what we accidentally do is we sort of create this culture of fear around sleep. Welcome to FemPower Health. Georgie here. I'm excited to bring to you this episode with Dr. Chris Winter. After reading his book, I emailed him and said, I never thought I would read a book on sleep and give a review that it is both incredibly informative and hilarious. So you can imagine how much I was looking forward to this discussion. I do encourage you to read his book because there's a lot of nuances in there that we definitely cannot cover on this podcast. And as you know, when I interview authors, I do like to talk about the things that are not necessarily in the book. And because we know that sleep is important, we either don't know how to get it or aren't able to prioritize it. Let's learn how. So let's get into this discussion with Dr. Chris Winter, and I will tell you his tips work. I tried just a few of them, and I cannot believe how much my sleep was transformed. So I hope this can help you as well. Enjoy. So I'm excited to have you on the podcast today, and we're going to be talking about the very important topic of sleep, which we all know is important, but you wrote this book that gives details that I don't think a lot of us have truly considered when it comes to why sleep is so important and how we can get good sleep. We live in this age of technology, speed, and all sorts of other things that are contributing to us not being able to sleep. So we're going to cover some great information actually specific to women's health, um, but I do think everyone needs to read your book because we can't cover it all in this time. But before we dive in, tell us about yourself. Sure. So well, thanks for that introduction. My name is Chris Winter. I'm a neurologist and sleep specialist from Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, I practice sleep medicine. So I see I have a clinic here and I see adults and kids who have sleep problems. I've been in the field in some way since the early 90s when I started doing sleep research as an undergraduate student and just liked it so much. I never left. I've been around amazing sleep people and I've had fantastic mentors and, and really enjoy you know, helping people with their sleep, either clinically or I work with a bunch of sports teams or you know, doing media or podcast interviews like this. It's all, it's all got merit. There's so much to learn about sleep and so much information to put out there. So I appreciate the platform. 
what I wanted to start with to set the stage, because I know that so many of us are used to quick fixes. And I also wanted to start with the messages that we keep hearing. It's on page 165 in your book. So I'm going to turn there um, about what society keeps putting into the universe about sleep, which I think can create artificial pressures. And I really appreciate in your book, you're like, I felt like you were saying, here are things we realistically need to do, but certain pressures actually impact our sleep in a negative way. So you say here that the messages out there are sleep is for optimal health, get your eight hours at night or face consequences. Lack lack of sleep makes you fat. Lack of sleep leads to heart failure. Lack of sleep may lead to breast cancer. In the face of all these dire warnings, what conclusion would any rational individual reach after a night of poor sleep? I better get my sleep or I'm toast. So tell us about that. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot going on when it comes to sleep. And I don't think that sleep lends itself to sort of the morsel, tiny little message that's in the magazine we read or the 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 broadcast or the little TikTok Instagram video, just because it's it's so much more than those types of things. So everything you read is true. But I think that what we have is a problem that individuals who might struggle sometimes to fall asleep quickly, which is clearly the metric of good sleep in this country, which is a terrible metric. It lends itself to this false equation of, I went to bed last night and it took me an hour to fall asleep. Therefore, I'm now at risk of breast cancer and cardiovascular disease and dementia. And that's no more true than you weren't hungry for dinner. And so now you're at risk for starvation. I mean, maybe, but there's a lot of things that need to happen between point A and point B. So what we accidentally do is we sort of create this culture of fear around sleep that you were already struggling to fall asleep a little bit. And now with every study that comes out on ABC Nightly News, it just creates more and more pressure. It's sort of like, you need to make these free throws so we can get two points for this basketball game. And we need those two points so we can win. And we need to win because it's the championship. And if we don't win this, you'll be responsible for the rest of your life for us losing the championship. And you won't get endorsements and you won't get trophies. And the teammates won't likely like you. And you'll disappoint your family and friends. And all these people have come to it suddenly becomes something very different than just put a rubber ball through an iron hoop. It's all these layers of things. And I think we don't do a good job of sort of parsing out who's really at risk for all those things you just read. It's really not the person who gets in bed and it takes them a while to fall asleep. It's that's, that's not true. You know, speaking of taking a while to fall asleep, what I also found interesting in the book is you were laying out in one of the sections around Take it, how it might take time to fall asleep and then take time to get out of bed. And so I actually almost want to um, ask you, what would an ideal night look like? Because I will say, I, I think I had a false sense of good sleep as well, because I used to be the type of person, like, for example, if I would go on a plane ride before the plane even took off, I would fall asleep. And as soon as the plane landed, I would wake up. And now, like, I don't even need to nap and um, I don't fall asleep in ways like that. Now, now if I take a cross-continental flight, 
it's hard for me to sleep. So life has changed. And so I think I'd always equated if I don't fall asleep right away, something's wrong. Or if I can't jump out of bed and race to the gym, something's wrong. And reading that chapter, I was like, whoa, can you maybe start with that foundation of if you're in a good state outside of obviously feeling good throughout the day so that we don't get in this panic state of we know we need to sleep. I can't fall asleep right away. Oh my goodness. Like getting out of that cycle. What kind of that ideal path look like in the getting to sleep and waking up? Yeah, I think you said it. You said outside of how we feel during the day, I would say it's everything about how we feel during the day to some extent. Like I think the way you feel when the alarm clock goes off is very overrated. I think that the time it takes you to fall asleep is entirely overrated and problematic in the sense that If there are two people and one person takes them 30 minutes, maybe 45 minutes to fall asleep in a given night, and the other person is always asleep before their head hits the pillow, I'm much more worried about the head hits the pillow person. Why are you so sleepy that you're literally falling asleep during conversations at night before you go to bed? That worries me more as a sleep professional than the person who says, I get in bed and it's sort of like looking at two people in a park and one sitting there and the other person is looking for food in a trash can. Who are you more worried about? You would never say, oh, I wish I could be like that trash can person. They're such good eaters. No, they're not good eaters. They're starving and they're looking for food. They're so driven to sleep or eat that they'll eat anything. And that's how the sleep person can sometimes be. So to me, it is really more about functioning. If you're sitting in a quiet lecture? Are you somebody who struggles to stay awake? Is it a joke in your family that every time you all sit down to watch a movie, you're the first person to fall asleep? You know, Those can be great indications that there's either a quality or a quantity problem with sleep. So the things that I would really divorce out of people's minds are speed to unconsciousness. How, do, how long does it take you to fall asleep? And number two, do you wake up some during the night? I mean, that that's the other one that people just drives people crazy. I go to bed and sometimes I wake up every night at two o'clock and it takes me a while to get back to sleep. Okay. Like why, why is that a problem for you? So this idea that great sleep is when you get in bed, fall asleep really, really fast, and you never wake up until the alarm clock goes off is a terrible goal for our sleep. That's, that's, that's that's not at all what good sleep is. There's plenty of people who fall asleep very quickly, never wake up during the night, and have significant sleep problems. And if you think about somebody who's sleep deprived, I mean, as a doctor, you know, and you're on call and you're you have a terrible night and you're just, you know, you don't get really any sleep because the emergency room never stops calling. My guess is you would go home and have some breakfast and might sit down after the breakfast and go right to sleep in a chair. And your family's like, oh my God, we tried to wake you up to see if we could get you to get from the chair into your bed because you looked so exhausted. We couldn't wake you up. I don't think that's healthy at all. That, you know, I had an Uber driver who fell asleep at a stoplight. So the light turned green. I'm sitting there and kind of not really paying attention. We didn't go anywhere. <laughs> I look around, there he is asleep. <laughs> that's not a good sleeper, you know? But the funny thing is, everybody's like, oh yeah, Jeff, you know, he goes home and everybody's like, Jeff's a great sleeper. Why do you say that? Jeff can sleep anywhere, right? Because Jeff has two jobs and he's driving an Uber in between them to make ends meet. He's sleep deprived. It's not that he's a good sleeper. His body is like anytime Jeff's body is still, he's going to fall asleep. So 
we just don't do a good job of communicating these messages out there. It's just fall asleep and breast cancer and people get it all mixed up and it becomes, it, it creates more issues, not reduces them. No. And, and I have to say like one of my favorite tips in your book, I implemented right away and it made such a difference. I couldn't believe it is if you wake up in the middle of the night, do not look at the clock. The first two nights I was so stressed. I was, what, how, how do I say this? I wasn't stressed. Cause that was the other thing you said, don't look at the clock. Cause all it's going to do is make you stress. Cause no matter what time it is, you're going to panic about either, you know, you only have 30 more minutes or whatever it is. It's not going to be good. So I um, woke up and I was like, don't look at the clock. Don't look at the clock. Don't look at the clock. And I wanted to look at the clock and I fell asleep so easily. And the second night I was a little less like, don't look at the clock. And now it's just, if I wake up, I just go right back to bed. And it was dramatic, like just that little tip. So thank you. <laughs> I think that, you know, there's a clock that like projects the time on the ceiling. What? I'm like, why? What does it matter? You know, like, I mean, I, you know, I don't care. I mean, I, I'll, you know, when I wake up in the night sometimes, like I did last night and I was kind of like, Alexa, what time is it? Just because I was curious, like, is it almost time to get up? Because I don't care. If they said your, your alarm's going to go off in two minutes, I'll bet I could go back to sleep before the alarm went off in two minutes. But if, if you're somebody who that creates anxiety, if it's dark outside, you can rest assured you haven't overslept. You know, it's not 7 a.m. yet. You can tell this by looking at a window. So who cares if it's 2 a.m. or 5 a.m.? Like, just go okay. back to sleep or okay. not. Lay there. It's It's okay. I noticed um, in my perimenopause phase, routinely, exactly 2 a.m. every single night. There were times that I and a lot of my um, friends and just other women through the podcast network um, that I've spoken to talk about even like really crazy night terrors. Um, like I had one that was repeated. It was so scary. It was when I was in my Manhattan apartment. It felt real. Like Someone climbed into the fire escape, opened the window, and these two humongous men were leaping over me into my bed. Like, can you imagine having to wake up to that multiple? It was so awful. And now, luckily, my hormones have stabilized, and so it's not that bad. But it seems to be very common as our hormones are fluctuating till we reach menopause. So I don't know if you've um, seen this a lot with specifically with patients or even just have reactions um, with these hormone changes that we women experience, especially in this phase, because it's a really tough one. And also they call this um, secondary puberty. So even young girls, as they're going through the hormone changes before their menstrual cycles normalize, I can see both sides. So I'm curious sure. your thoughts. Yeah, we see this a lot. And I, I just throw out a disclaimer. You know, when I wrote the first book, I didn't really write the book. I was just writing down a lot of thoughts I had about sleep. And through some very unusual circumstances, I got an offer from Penguin to, to write a book. And so I just sent them this massive Word document I had accumulated of my musings about sleep. And they said, clean it up and, and sold. So I didn't really sort of set out as I did for my second book with, here's the book and here's how we'll lay it out. And this is how big we want it. I just sent them this massive document. So one of the unfortunate things was they said, this is great, but it's, it's way too much stuff. So you need to cut it down. So I cut the kids stuff out. And in the biggest, one of the biggest mistakes of my life, I cut out a lot of stuff about 
menopause, perimenopause. I just thought, well, maybe this, A, I think maybe I'm not the best expert to talk about that. And B, I got to make some hard decisions. Nobody will care. Oh my God, that was the worst mistake in my life. Everybody always writes about the book is like, did you cover menopause? Really? No No way. Yes, no. I mean, over (laughs) and over and over again. In fact, when I started doing my podcast, I think, I can't remember, but it was like the initial, hello, I'm going to do a podcast. And then I think I did something maybe on sleeping pills. And then the third episode was menopause. And, you know, it's, it's ironic. I bitch all the time about the fact that medicine doesn't really understand or care about sleep. If the, the doctor that's treating your sleep disorder, you should ask him or her, how much training have you had in sleep? There's a very good chance they would say none. Right. And so I complain about that all the time. And it's really interesting. I think the same thing could be said about menopause. I mean, when I think back to my medical school training, and I don't even think we got a lecture on it. Right. Yet it's going to affect half this the globe's population. Like it's it's really it's one thing not to get you know told about some rare esoteric lymphoma, but to not even discuss menopause. So a I'm not sure if I'm the best person to ask about this because I also grew up in a generation that of doctors that I think we were taught to kind of fear it in a way like, oh, you can't give hormones to women who are going through menopause because they're so dangerous and not just a lot of weird thinking about that. But the key of it is that menopause definitely does cause changes in terms of women's sleep. There's no question about it. And at the same time, women are often going through a bit of a reduction in their sleep needs. So if you look at historically from the time we're born till the time we get the senior citizen discount. And I think women often go through a very rapid period of loss during in and around menopause. So it's not only about recognizing what women are going through, but also trying to parse out what needs to be treated and what is, for lack of a better word, the natural progression of things. But you know, so I, I think that that I always err on the side of if it's a problem for you, it's a problem for me. So let's figure out something that we can do about it. If somebody says, look, I've been waking up a lot more since I've gone through menopause. I'll often wake up at two o'clock in the morning. It's a little bit more difficult for me to get back to sleep. I'm OK with that. If somebody says, no, I'm waking up like 20 times during the night, I'm snoring more. And my partner says that, you know, they feel like I stopped breathing. Well, then maybe we need to be more concerned about something, you know, a bit more sinister going on. Women are sort of protected from things like sleep apnea until menopause. And then all of a sudden the risk virtually equals that of a man. So I think we have to take women seriously when they talk about complaints of their sleep. And, uh, you know, historically it's always been, well, you know, let me just pat you on the head and you're a woman and you're going through menopause and there's nothing we can do about it. And that's not really true. There was a wonderful New York Times daily podcast on menopause and hormonal treatment. Yep. It was like a Sunday read. I thought it was outstanding. Mm-hmm. Just this idea that we as physicians let women down all the time and sleep and menopause are maybe two of the biggest ways we do that. Yeah, no, it's it's true. And I, I just think about my own journey. And and by the way, for anyone listening who wants to learn more about perimenopause and menopause, I've spoken to a lot of different experts on the podcast about this. And I actually, because I do so many different topics, I created Spotify 
playlist so people can look at a topic and see who all I interviewed about what. And it's almost like our bodies just become so much more sensitive because of the hormone changes. And I know that the those listening may not want to hear this, but wine, any alcohol really seems to be a humongous, humongous impact. Like I even notice, and you mentioned it in the book, generally for sleep, yes. but I will say in this stage of life, huge, huge impact. Yeah. I noticed that the um, the wake up time and the panic and all that stuff is worse if I have wine and to the point where like a lot of us just can't even drink it anymore. Yeah. Have as much as you want. Have it with breakfast. That's my joke that I always tell professional athletes. Just knock yourself out, but it's got to be with your bacon and eggs. Don't do that. Um, yeah. I mean, I've kind of come to the same conclusion. I was never a huge alcohol drinker, but it's just not worth it. Yeah. I'm not sure if it ever was, but you know, I get it. If somebody's like, look, I really want to have a glass of red wine with this wonderful dinner I'm having, then make the choice, but understand you're probably going to pay for it tonight. And if you're like, it's okay, it's, I'm, I'm willing to pay for it tonight because it's such a special event or whatever, then go for it. But you know, as I get older, I'm like every night to me counts. Right. <laughs> so no, I hear you. It has to be a really special occasion. Um, so anyway. So let me ask you this about the the waking up in the middle of the night, though, like just a reality check on it, because the hormone part, I think it's very complicated. And I, I bet you there have not been enough sufficient studies, not sufficient Correct. studies to understand this anyway. So I think we have to just do with what we know, because we probably need a cross-functional team of the sleep doctor and the menopause expert and a few others to have a collaboration on this. Um, which I would love to facilitate if if that's something, um, maybe that's something we should try to do. So in the meantime, with what we know, we are women who have these crazy hormone changes. We wake up at 2 a.m. We try to not look at the clock, but we're still struggling. What I've always wondered is this math of the alarm is going to go off soon and there are these rumors about that 90 minute sleep cycle and people think if they sleep in 90 minute sleep cycles, they're going to be fine. And you definitely said, heck no, in the book, I don't know if it's mathematically or how we should look at what happens in the middle of the night when we know we have to get up at a certain time and what should we be considering? So we don't feel like we wake up and then we have kids to deal with getting to work, going to the gym, all that other stuff that gets loaded on our plates when we wake up. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to understand is it's natural to wake up. Nobody's sleeping through the night in the way you think you are. Okay. So in other words, if we hook everybody up, the greatest sleepers and the terrible sleepers, people wake up a lot during the night. You may not be aware of it. Your partner might be. And when you say, I didn't wake up at all last night. And you're like, well, yeah, you did. You woke up at one point and said something about a lawnmower, went back to sleep. Like, <laughs> oh, really? I don't remember doing that. Well, right. Because it happened so quickly and your brain just kind of moved right through it. So... This idea that if we wake up, all is lost needs to be dispelled very quickly. It's kind of like not being able to stop during a meal and talk to the people that you're with. No, you really, once you start eating, I need you to not, not have food in your mouth. Like, of course you eat a little bit and you talk and you sit there for a minute and you go back to, you know, it, that that's perfectly fine. That's the way we're supposed to eat and the way we're supposed to sleep. So I think just having a, a realistic understanding of what is happening when people sleep is important. And number two, we're going to wake up. Like, let's all plan for it right now that tonight we're all going to go to bed. Some of us are going to wake up when the alarm clock goes off and not have a lot of memories of waking up during the night. And others of us will say, well, 
I actually woke up once and I went to the bathroom and I went right back to sleep. Oh, I did too, but it took me about 20 minutes to fall back to sleep. So these things are going to happen and they're totally natural. So to me, I think that's step one is just understanding that you might wake up. Somebody might come to the door. Like, I don't know, <laughs> you know, like, or we may be able to get through this whole podcast and nothing happens, but I've got a plan for both. Like if nobody comes, I'm going to sit here and talk to you and do the podcast. If somebody comes to the door, I, I, I'll ignore it if I can recognize them and know who they are. But if it's important, I might have to interrupt. Like it's just having that plan. And for some reason, we've all got in our minds that it's only good sleep if we don't wake up. And I mean, I could introduce you to a bunch of WNBA players who are these radically amazing women athletes. And they hydrate so much during the day that they're probably going to wake up a couple of times to go to the bathroom and it's okay. So I think that's where it really begins is like setting expectations of you might wake up tonight. And when you do, we can't freak out about it. That's the pro that is the issue. It's not the awakening. It's not that it takes you a while to fall asleep. That's been going on since the dawn of time. It's the response we have to it. Is it, I woke up, I don't really care. Or great. Oh my God. Oh, I woke up. It's, it's four and I've got to get up at six. That's two hours. There's no way in the world I'm going to go back to sleep. And I've got such a busy day. Oh, all is lost. And it is. And, and, and we know from research that once that person decides, damn it, it's all, it's all my, my entire day has been shot to hell now. Cause I woke up at four o'clock in the morning and now it's four 20. I'm still awake. The day will be put in the loss column. Okay. I mean, when you, when you talk to people, the way they interpret their day or believe in the day affects them a lot more than the person who's like, oh, I got five hours. I'll be fine. It's no big deal. One thing I'm actually curious about is how much postpartum depression has to do with sleep. I think a lot of it is the hormone changes, but I wonder that too, because I think back to when I first had my son. I was very adamant about nursing him and we struggled because he slept so much that we had to put ice on his back to wake him up so he would nurse. And we had like, it took a two person team because I had to like pump and then give him a tube while he was nursing to wake him up. So milk was already going into his mouth. So he would decide to start eating. It was a mess. And I was delirious. Like literally I was having hallucinations. It was that bad. Um, and for me, what worked is I, was fortunate enough to be able to hire a doula, a postpartum doula. And she came over to literally just take care of him and said, you need to go sleep. You're going to take the longest showers of your life. She would make these towels soaked in Epsom salts and lavender and put them on my shoulder. And she was like, you have to sleep during the day. I don't care. You need to sleep. So that's what we did. But again, you've experienced um, many more patients than me, myself and I here. So I'd love to get your perspective on what should these new moms, you know, plan for? Because I assume this is not something we want to do, like in the midst of we just had a kid. Oh, crap. But maybe plan for what do we do to make sure we've had the rest to be able to be there for our child and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, these things are hard and, and this sort of gets at a lot of different issues um, and, and kind of crosses interesting lines from are you saying this as a doctor or are you saying this as a parent or a concerned human being, which is, I would never tell a parent, this is how you should structure your kids sleeping or your own sleeping. 
you know, I've got parents who say, well, we just want our kid to sleep whenever he wants to sleep and be awake whenever he wants to be awake. I would never do that for myself. I think that is a huge mistake, but this is your life and your child. And, and when I look at the parents and the people who've sought our help over the years, I'm not sure anybody's ever said, man, our kid is so predictable and scheduled. We'd really like to have him much more unpredictable, inefficient, and non-scheduled. Like, can you help us with that? Right. That has never been a, it's always the opposite. It's, I can't sleep because I don't know when he's going to sleep and he'll fall asleep at strange times. And, and then when we need him to sleep so I can get some sleep or get some things done, he's not like, so generally speaking, I think most parents are looking for efficiency and predictability. And, and I think that trying to get that established with your kid very quickly is important because to some degree, your sleep depends upon that. Yes. And when you're dealing with a single parent with twins, I don't have an answer for that. Right. I mean, it's sort of like, what do I do? I've got, I got to work two jobs to pay my mortgage and I only have about three hours in between them to sleep. This is, this is a math equation that I am not nearly smart enough to solve because now we're cutting into what do I do to make up for the fact that I can't get the sleep that I need. So in the case of the the parent, I think it's under you need to understand that number one, resting can be just as uh, restorative as sleep can be. So one of the things I think that you need to plan for is that you're going to put your child down and you're sitting there listening to the monitor or listening through the door and you're waiting and you're like, oh, please, please don't start making those little sounds that lead to the crying that lead to me having to go in there. Uh, and the child sleeps and you're like, oh my gosh, they're asleep. I've got probably an hour that I could sleep. And so I think when you have the chance to sleep, you need to sleep. Don't go put dishes in the dishwasher. You can do that when they're awake. Don't return the phone calls or answer emails. I, I really think that when you have the chance to sleep, you got to take it immediately. And then number two, understand that there's a very good chance that you're going to be like, great, I get to sleep, go into the bedroom, turn off the lights, get in bed, and you're not going to fall asleep right away. I mean, it's tough to fall asleep with a gun to your head. And that's essentially what you're doing. Oh my God, I've got to fall asleep right now because he or she's going to be awake in an hour. And that's tough for some people that, that now it's sort of like, Oh, I've got a, you know, in fact, that was, I've got an idea for a game show. And it's essentially, I'm going to give you two hours to fall asleep. I'm going to show up at your house with this massive hourglass of two hours worth of sand in it and television cameras and a big, big check. It's got your name on it for a million dollars. All you have to do is fall asleep in two hours when you go to bed. I don't think I'd ever give the check away because you only get one night to do it. Right. And everybody, oh, America's watching you. Okay. Catherine Jones from Topeka, Kansas. You're going to play, fall asleep for a million dollars. And we close the doors and the TV cameras are on in there and the sand is slowly pulling through the hourglass. And that person's never fallen asleep because now it's like, oh my God, well, we got, okay, I can do this. Just relax, relax. Okay. Oh my God, I'm not falling asleep. Oh my God, I'm going to lose the million dollars. And I think that's kind of what the parent's doing. They're like, oh my gosh, it's already been 30 minutes. I only got 30 minutes now before they wake up. Like why even bother? Like that's not the way you want to approach it. And frankly, when the kid gets older, I wouldn't approach it with their naps that way either. It's rest time. It's rest time for the kids, rest time for the parent, meaning that your job is to go into that bedroom, turn off all the lights, and just close your eyes. Think pleasant thoughts. 
Think about what you want to do this weekend. Think about a gift to give your mother because she's been so helpful to you. Think about your celebrity crush. Think about White Lotus because you've been watching that on TV. Whatever you want to think about, just pray, meditate, whatever you want to do. Sitting there in the dark with your eyes closed, rest, resting is very restorative to people. And when you start making that the goal versus falling asleep really fast, it changes everything. It, it takes the pressure off. It's like your coach saying, go in there and shoot the free throws. We don't care if you make them or not. We're, you know, we're ahead by a hundred points. It doesn't matter. Make right. it or don't make it. Nothing changes. Like that's kind of the way you want to approach things because frankly, nobody has that much control over the precise moment they fall asleep. All we can control are the circumstances. So get in there and rest. Let me tell you something. As a new parent, you sit in there with your eyes closed, meditating, thinking awesome thoughts about some fun trip to Italy or something like that you'd like to take and you do that for an hour and you never fall asleep, you're going to feel really good when your child wakes up and you got to take care of them. Yeah, no, it's, it is absolutely true because there are times where um, like I get really stressed out during the day and, and um, it, I feel very tired from it or just exhausted or anxious, whatever the emotion yeah. might be. And I'll take a break. And sometimes I'll be like, let me, take a nap for like maybe 20 minutes. And most of the time I don't fall asleep, but the, just the sitting there doing nothing. Um, I do have like, um, I use the Breathe app, love the Breathe app and uh, listen to some meditation. And just by doing that, yeah. transformative. But I do want to at least say this quote because it's really um, important for um, working with clinicians. Knowing that a patient who says he can't sleep does in fact sleep is not the same thing as a patient not having a problem or not needing treatment. It is nearly a tool for providing a better way to define and treat a patient's sleep problem. So to clarify, the summary there is you sleep, don't say you don't. You can say those words to your doctor so your doctor can help you. And if your doctor doesn't believe you, call Chris. <laughs> no, you're bringing up a good point in that it's not about telling a patient that they're lying or they're stupid. And it's about, like you said, it's redefining the problem from, I need to do something to make you sleep, which is never the problem, which is why a lot of times insomnia therapies don't work. It's about recognizing the fact that that person is suffering a trauma. They've come to you for help, not to be told that they're silly. And, you know, one of the most disappointing things that I can read is a review that like, he doesn't think insomnia is important. Oh, I think insomnia is really important. You're, you're taking what I'm saying out of context. In fact, episode number six of my podcast was the trauma of insomnia. And that trauma is made worse because our, our medical response to it is, oh, we just got to give you drugs to knock you out. No, that's not how you treat insomnia. It's about helping a person understand how sleep really works and then working through them so that they're approaching sleep with confidence, excitement, not, oh God, I've got to go to bed in four hours and I hate it because it's miserable. And I wish I could be like this person next to me who's just asleep like that. Like there's a lot of things that get rolled up in that. And so being able to say, look, you sleep. If you're watching this podcast, you're sleeping. There's no, there's no way around it. And you breathe and you drink water and you eat food. I, I'm sure of those things. But that doesn't mean you don't have a problem. Right. We just have to define it a little bit differently because that will help you get out from under it much more quickly. Yep. And it will help refine the process of getting you what you need to feel better. No, absolutely. I'd love to talk about 
a couple of things like melatonin, sleeping pills and things like that. And and I just want to preface by saying thank you so much for writing it the way that you did. So I'm an anti-medication type person. I do work by day for the pharmaceutical industry, but um, I still feel like medications are there for a purpose. Your chapter was so great because, again, even though I'm in healthcare, I can't know everything. I can't think about everything all day long. So your book helped because I do have, for mental health stuff, some medications that I'm taking, right? And I, after this chapter or this section of the book, I went to my psychiatrist and I said, I would like to go through the medications again. And I want to clarify which one is for sleep and which one is for mental health and which one I can survive without and the order in which I can start either decreasing the dose and eventually cutting it out, which one do I have to stay on? Like that was the conversation. We laid it out. Even though I knew the meds, um, I still wanted to like ask the question in a different way. And can I tell you that just by implementing, don't freak out when the alarm goes off, just be chill about how long it takes to go to bed. I don't need the app to go to bed. And I am on taking one third less of one of the pills and a half of the other, half a pill of what I was taking on another, which I was already on a quarter of a pill. So already just by taking these tips <laughs> into account, yeah. less meds and potentially on my way to being off of some of them. So big thank you. Talk to us. So first let's talk about melatonin because that's a common one. So many people talk about, by the way, I've tried it. I don't find it works for me. But I'd love to get your perspective because I've talked to different experts, but you're the sleep expert. So your word is uh, is the word here. Yeah. So I think the operative word here is work. It doesn't work for me. So I think it's very important for patients to define that word. I think it's important for patients and the doctors that are treating them to find the word. You're going to give me a pill. Great. Why? How do we know it's working? Like what what are our endpoints here? And if the and if the endpoint is Oh, we're going to give you this so you can sleep. That's a false endpoint. You're already sleeping. Impossible not to. A lot of times our therapeutic interactions when it comes to medications, which I'm not opposed to medications. I use medications all the time. I just want to be very clear with the patient why we're doing it. And if the and if the expectation is, oh, well, I take that pill so I can sleep, I think you need to have a conversation with your provider just like you did. Because I just heard this guy on a podcast and he says, you're giving me this drug for sleep. And it's not necessary. I'm curious what you would say about that. If the provider says, no, he's wrong. You need this pill so you can sleep. I, I would be concerned about that. Um, my ch- chances are they're going to say, I, you know, I don't know. Like He's probably right. Like I was just giving this to you so you could fall asleep faster. Now we're back to, wow, are we falling asleep faster? So defining work is important. Melatonin is a chemical that we make in our brains. And it's not a sleep aid. It's a, it's a chemical that's responsible for aligning our internal circadian rhythm with the 24-hour day. So we're generally awake during the day and generally asleep at night. So if somebody says, look, I'm flying to Morocco for this amazing yoga retreat, and I'm going to use melatonin to help me with my jet lag. Okay, we can do that. That's, that's exactly what it's for. That's what melatonin is doing in your brain. If it's oh, I take this and everybody in my family, including my kids, take it so we can sleep. You're couldn't be more wrong. So, you know, to me, it's it's sort of the the reason it's so popular is because it's relatively harmless. Right. So when you go to your doctor who's never had any training on sleep, and you're like, I can't sleep. 
rather than really getting into it. It's like, well, here, just take some melatonin gummy bears and get out of my clinic, essentially. So, you know, so, it, you know, if somebody's saying, look, I have to have melatonin to sleep. No, you don't. You get plenty of melatonin. Just get outside and exercise, you know, be around natural light. Keep the lighting in your environment pretty dim at night and you'll have all the melatonin you need. In terms of sleeping pills, I, I'm just not a fan of them because they're they're kind of a lie. I mean, I say all the time, I've never met a sleeping pill that doesn't lie. Why are you taking that? Are you taking it so you can sleep? You don't need it to sleep. What most people tell you is, I don't want to take sleeping pills. And I only take half, but I'm taking it because I've got an important job and lots to do, and I've got to be my best for that. Okay, so what you're saying is, you're taking it so you can perform better the next day, right? Right, wrong. There's never been a sleeping pill that shows that it improves performance. And when you actually look at the data behind sleeping pills, it's comical. It's sort of like, it's going to help you fall asleep seven minutes faster and sleep maybe an additional 11 minutes during the night. Okay. How many people, Chris, come to your clinic saying, man, I go to bed at 11 o'clock and I always fall asleep at 1130. Got anything that would help me fall asleep closer to like 1123? <laughs> I mean, no, that's not, nobody's like, Chris, I, I could really use an additional eight minutes of sleep, you know, every night, you know, what, what can I do? And, and, and nobody's taking pills saying that. Well, I take this pill because I feel like I need an additional eight minutes of sleep on average in my night. No, it's I take it because I can't sleep without it. Right. Oh, Chris, I've tried not taking pills. I just can't sleep. No, I mean, so that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with almost a fixed delusion sometimes. Right. You think that pill is responsible for the, you actually sleeping? Again, don't take my word for it. Just go talk to your prescribing doctor. And while you're there, ask him, why are you giving me trazodone? What is the FDA indication for trazodone as it relates to sleep? What is the FDA indication for Seroquel as it relates to sleep? I mean, not only are you using a medication, it's not doing anything for your sleep. It's got no indication for it. There's no re They're literally using it to knock you out, which is interesting because if you went to your doctor and they said, you know what you need is bourbon. And I'm, I'm going to give you a list of some good bourbons here that you can take for your sleep. My guess is you would be finding another doctor very quickly. Right. You'd be like, this doctor I went to was recommending alcohol for me. Well, look at what Clonopin does. Clonopin is still used by a lot of doctors to help people sleep. Look at the chemical reaction that happens with the drug like Clonopin or benzodiazepine. Look at the chemical reaction of alcohol in your brain. It's essentially the same thing. They're just drugging people to sleep for no real reason. They're not solving the problem any more than cotton in your nose solves the problem of a nasal sinus hemorrhage. You got to get in there and fix the problem. You're just blocking the blood from coming out of my nose. That's right. not doing anything. You're not treating anything. Right. And just to clarify that the position you seem to have in the book is if you are prescribed these for a reason, you need a plan to get off of them. And so like, for example, you said the melatonin, if you're traveling cross country um, and, yeah. or um, cross time zones. So that that is still fairly the stance is ne it's not never take anything ever. It's take it for the of right course. reasons with a plan. Because I, I will say when you share the data for the impact of long-term use, I think that was... Well, not only the feeling better informed, but hearing the data of the long-term use of these things, I think was huge. And so I think it's just really important for everyone to consider that here. Because if you're like, oh, this is an easy, quick fix. Yeah, these drugs have consequence. So again, 
Do I give patients medications for restless leg syndrome? Yes, all the time. Do I give patients medications for narcolepsy? Of course, all the time. Do I prescribe CPAPs for patients who have sleep apnea? You bet I do. But when it's, I can't sleep, we've got to do a lot better than, oh, let's find the, the sedating drug for you. Like that's, that's not addressing the problem. We're not helping patients do that. And like you said, we're not even getting into the negative consequences of this drug. I'm just arguing there's no real positives to them. Right. And when you talk to people who've come off of medications, like you might be in the process of, I don't meet a lot of people who are like, you know what? I kind of felt better when I was on the drugs or I kind of felt better when I was drinking a six pack every night to help me sleep. Like that never happens. Right. They'll argue with you. Chris, I hear what you're saying, but I just, I just fall asleep a lot easier if I drink a couple glasses of red wine. No, you become sedated faster. You're not sleeping better. And if you come off the, the alcohol, I can virtually guarantee you're going to feel that. And, and for the most part, people do. I mean, I don't have a lot of people racing back to the alcohol and sleeping pills. They're yeah. just, they're not good medicine. I do have a question on, on sleep apnea before we close. One thing I wasn't clear about, and it could have been just when I was reading about sleep apnea, there was a lot going on that day. I, I think I got that sleep apnea is not necessarily something that only happens if you're overweight. It seems like there's other reasons for it. Is that correct? So we shouldn't assume. That is absolutely okay. correct. Um, I was just watching a video clip of, you know, like a rugby player and, you know, somebody threw her the ball and I have never seen somebody run as fast as this woman did. It was awe inspiring. I will say she was a big person. I mean, so yeah. if I just ran into her, I would think I'm pretty fast. I'm a fast guy. So even in my old age, my thought would have been if she challenged me to a race, I would have taken that bet because my presumption would have been, yeah, she's kind of a bigger person. She's probably not that fast. She would have killed me. She would have gone to the finish line and back and back again and, and still beat me. So I think we can say in general, heavier people are at more risk for sleep apnea, but we cannot say just because you are a thin, petite young woman doesn't mean you can't have it. Those are in fact the people that fool medicine all the time. And I just think women hide sleep apnea so much better than men. So we've always got to be kind of on the lookout for that, especially if you're feeling like, look, Chris, I hear what you're saying about waking up during the night, but not only do I wake up a lot, I'm just exhausted during the day. I can barely stay awake at my work. Like, there's reasons to investigate these things. I tell people all the time, just because you woke up last night, you know, doesn't mean you have to have a sleep study, but you know your body better than any doctor I ever could. And if you're feeling like, look, Chris, I hear what you're saying. I'd feel more comfortable having a sleep study just to rule some more dangerous things out. I would never stand in that person's way. Okay. So that's really the criteria of possibly being concerned. So it's okay. So it's not go lose weight. Now you'll be better. Okay. Excessive sleepiness, uh, weight gain, blood pressure issues are the three main things. If you're like, I've been more sleepy lately. I'm not off watching my TV shows at night. Never used to do that. I'm gaining weight. My blood pressure hasn't been great. It's time for a home sleep study. I think worst case scenario, it's normal. And you can check that off and rule that out. If it's positive and you've got sleep apnea, that can be a massive you know, risk factor to your health that you've negated. I guess what causes the sleep apnea? Because again, since I thought it was from weight, now I'm like completely, because you were saying before about women getting into the menopause phase of life, they can get it then. So uh, 
do we yeah. know the root cause of it? I mean, a lot of it has to do with weight and just as gravity over a lifetime's pulling on the airway, it just becomes a lot less stable and more likely to collapse. Okay. Um, how estrogen sort of plays that role. I've got plenty of women in my clinic who look like they could run a marathon tomorrow and have pretty significant apnea. You know, women's airways, if you look at MRIs, like, and sort of like, that's perfect breathing, that's sleep apnea. Like, it's it's such a minimal little change, all that's necessary. So, you know, for some people just gaining five or 10 pounds, they go from okay to having sleep apnea. So, I would just have a low bar. It used to be a lot harder when we had to do these big, expensive in-lab studies to figure it out. But now you can do a little quick home study in the comfort and privacy of your own bed and figure it out pretty quickly. Okay, perfect. Well, you have a lot of great resources in your book. We'll put links into it, um, into the show notes, so people can certainly check that out. So any last parting words of wisdom? You know, I, I think somebody said, what's the secret to great sleep? I think the secret to great sleep is being equally happy in bed awake as you are asleep, you know, and, 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 you know, so then it sort of becomes, okay, I'm going to go to bed, try to be in bed around 11. I'm going to be out of bed around seven. I'm going to set aside those eight hours and whatever happens is going to happen. It's, it, I'm not that concerned about it. And I saw this great little TikTok or YouTube video or something of a little girl who was obsessed with Mike Myers, the slasher guy from like the Halloween movies. <laughs> And they, the mother like arranged for him to show up at this little girl's two-year birthday party with all of her friends or three years. I mean, she was pretty young, very young. And it was great because the parents are like filming and all of a sudden this really creepy guy in this like jumpsuit and like mask. I don't think he was holding a knife, but he was terrifying. Just kind of appears in the, at the party. And slowly kids start to notice him and just freak except for the birthday girl who runs over and hugs him. And to me, I was like, that is insomnia. That is absolutely insomnia right there. That is sleep problems where, you know, if you can be like, oh, I woke up at two o'clock, went to the bathroom. I got back in bed. I couldn't fall back to sleep. Great. I love it. If, if that's your response to the situation, I don't think you'll ever have a night of insomnia in your life. Um, so just learning not to fear it, and then just being consistent during your day. You had a rough night. I'm sorry to hear that. Let's get up. Let's go to the gym. Let's be on a schedule. Let's not take a four-hour nap in the afternoon, and things will probably be okay the next day. I've got a son at the Naval Academy, and I think within a few weeks of him getting there, he said, there's nobody here for you to treat. He goes, there's no insomnia at the Naval Academy. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was pretty funny, like good or bad night, there is a bugle playing at 530 in the morning and push up soon to follow. So <laughs> anyway, just keep that keep that in mind that, that that can be very helpful, I think. And to honor your awesome anecdotes for any of you um, who are like, well, let me turn off my TV in my bedroom before I fall asleep. I think you said TVs in a bedroom are the equivalent to a toilet in the living room. You know, it's funny. People read me stuff. I, people read me stuff I wrote in my book. And my first thought is, oh, I can't believe I wrote that. <laughs> I can believe I thought it. Like, did I really put that in the you book? Did. So, you did. Yeah, I you, like that you said you that because I think there's a little bit of a buyer beware situation going on here before you buy that book. But <laughs> I tell people all the time, if you hate my book, I'll buy it back from you. No, no problem. Truly, thank you for your commitment. I appreciate you reading my book. You know, it's I get interviewed a lot. I, you know, it's it's fun to talk to me. I actually read it. I appreciate that. That was that was kind of you. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for making time. I really appreciate it.